Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about the parable of the unjust steward also known as the dishonest manager. This is a parable that is found in Luke chapter 16. The Lord Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and he was explaining some specific truths parabolically through this parable, and the Pharisees overheard him while he was talking. Now, when he gave this parable, he explained that the steward was a steward over some of the property that belonged to someone else, referred to as his master, and that an accusation was made against the steward telling the master that he was wasting the master's goods, that he was not a good steward of his property. And so the master informed the steward that he was no longer going to work for him because it appears that he believed the accusation. The steward was required to give an accounting of all of the transactions, of all the agreements that he made in order to defend himself and to show that he was not wasting his master's goods. The steward then proceeded to engage in some transactions with the people who owed the master debts, and he eventually went before the master, and the master commended him for his shrewdness, which can be interpreted or translated as a person who is simply using practical insights. He may be acting in a very smart way. Shrewd does not necessarily have to imply that he's being deceptive or dishonest. It just means that he's being very careful with the decisions that he is making. And so the master commends him after the steward presents his case, and then the Lord Jesus proceeds and gives an explanation and some insights that he wanted the disciples and the Pharisees to understand. Now, of course, the fundamental purpose for this parable was to explain to the people that they were not going to be able to be as righteous as was necessary in order to have a home in the kingdom of heaven, in order to have eternal life. That was the fundamental purpose of his parables. The reason for his parables, the reason why he taught in parables, was in order to convey the same message that he conveyed openly and plainly before the nation of Israel, or the Jews at that time, before they officially rejected him as the Messiah. And I explained this in the programs that I produced on accounting for the three days and three nights in the first program or two in that series. I explained how the people officially rejected him, and then he told them that only one more sign would be given, and that was the sign of Jonah, that as Jonah was in the whale for three days and three nights, so also he would be in the grave for three days and three nights. That's where I put that explanation. And so after they rejected him, he did continue to teach the same message, that they needed to be as perfect as God, or they would in no way enter the kingdom of heaven, as he presented clearly on the Sermon on the Mount. He continued to teach the same message, but he did it parabolically. He didn't do it directly. He did it with these stories, with these parables, and this is one of them. 
And so that was the fundamental purpose for why he gave this parable. But one of the concerns that I find a lot of people have, because I do get questions from people about various parts in the scriptures, one of the most popular concerns about this parable is how would it be, or how could it be, that the steward could be commended by the master after rewriting the debts that the debtors owed the master? That's what happened. In Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, and he said, A hundred measures of oil is what the debtor owed him. So he said, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. So he went from owing his master a hundred measures of oil to now having a debt of fifty measures of oil. And then in verse 7, Luke chapter 16, verse 7, then he said to another, And how much do you owe? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And then in verse 8, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. And the concern that people have is, well, if the people owed him a certain amount of oil and wheat, if one debtor owed a hundred measures of oil and the other owed a hundred measures of wheat, and then they owe him 50 measures of oil and 80 measures of wheat, then how is it that the master is going to commend him for that? And what I was explaining in the previous program is that there is a way to reconcile this, and that is that the steward went to the debtors and said, let's resolve the debt, not let's continue the debt, but let's resolve it. And so the writing down of the debt is a way to reconcile the debt. It's a way to bring the debt to a close so that the steward would go to the debtors and say, we are going to resolve this debt, and in order to resolve the debt, I propose that you give me 50 measures of oil and 80 measures of wheat, respectively, to the different debtors, and then we will call it paid. We will call it finished. And then he can go to his master and deliver the master's property. Now, remember the concern that the master had. The concern that the master had was that his goods were being wasted. In order for these debtors to owe him oil and wheat, that would imply, I believe, that they received oil from the master and they received wheat from the master. If they received oil and wheat, then they would be expected to return or pay back more than what they received. Otherwise, the master is not making a profit on the goods that he has that are being used in this debt exchange. And so the position I took in the previous program was that as long as the master receives as much as was originally lent to these debtors, or more than what he lent to these debtors, then he could say that his goods were not wasted. And on that basis, he could say that the steward was shrewd, that he was acceptable, that he could be commended, because the master's goods were returned probably with a profit. The point that Jesus was making, though, was that the steward was not necessarily getting from the debtors as much as he could have gotten. If the debtors owed him a hundred measures of oil, then why wouldn't he give him sixty? Why wouldn't he maybe negotiate? Why wouldn't he start by speaking with the debtor and giving the debtor an opportunity to make an offer with regards to what he had at his disposal 
right then and there that he could give to the steward so that the steward could go and defend himself from these probable false accusations that were being made against him. He was declared to be an unjust steward, or he was declared to be a dishonest manager by accusation. It doesn't mean that he really was. This was an accusation. However, Jesus does state that there is an expression of dishonesty, or at least an expression of unrighteousness, that could potentially be found because the steward might have been able to get just a little bit more. And so he had a failure, the steward had a failure in the sense that he failed to be in a good enough light or to have a good enough relationship with his master that his master would just hear some accusation and believe it on the spot and tell the steward that he's going to lose his position. That certainly is an aspect of failure. However, there is another potential failure, and that is that he could have received more. And that was what I was explaining in the previous program with regards to this parable, that people do have this concern. I believe it is a legitimate concern. However, this is how I read it. This is what I see, and perhaps you may disagree with me, which is, of course, just fine with me. But this is what I see concerning this parable and why it is possible, why it is reasonable for the master to commend the steward after the writing down of debt, again, because he was able to get his goods back without discovering that they were just wasted. Now, with this agreement, with this agreement that the steward made with the debtors, this put them in a form of debt to him because he did them a favor. He went to the debtors and he said, you know, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to do you a favor. You don't have to pay back all that you owe if you'll just pay back what you can right now. And I believe this is a reasonable amount. And so he did them a little bit of a favor. They certainly agreed to abide by what he offered. And so he did them a little bit of a favor. And in that way, they were no longer in debt to the master, if the payout was as I described, of course. Instead, now they are going to be indebted to the steward, not in a formal sense, not in terms of a contract, but only because the steward did them a favor. And so because of this type of indebtedness, the steward would now make friends with them. They would be friends with each other in a sense because he did something for them. And because he did something for them, there would be a potential understanding that they one day would do something for him. And that was what he was resolved to do. That is what he resolved to do. And that was to establish a new relationship with someone else, establish a friendship, in this case, establish a form of indebtedness, so that when he officially lost his position, when the transactions were all completed and he gave his accounting to the master, then he would have other people he could turn to and say, hey, listen, I need some help now myself. I did you a favor. I gave you some help. I want you to know that right now I need some help too. Now, this, of course, is not the best way to have a relationship with someone else. Definitely not the best way to have a friendship with someone else unless it is an understood agreement, unless the two of you formally agree that this is going to be the arrangement, that you are doing a favor for them and that one day they're going to expect that you do a favor for them in return. If this is not explicitly communicated, then when you go to someone else to call in the favor, 
they may not like that. They may not be in a position to comfortably fulfill the failure. They may not have understood that you were going to expect something in return. They may not have realized that what you were doing was not a gift. It was a transaction, and that transaction put them in a form of debt. Some people are okay with this, and they don't mind this, and it doesn't bother them so much. But I know a lot of people who are very disturbed by these kinds of relational situations. They definitely do not like it when people relate to them in this way at all. And for that reason, I know a lot of people who just simply do not receive any favors. They don't receive any gifts from anyone just because they don't want the stress or the pressure or the obligations that they will eventually one day have to fulfill. It's simply a burden that they don't want to have in their lives. And so you need to be very careful with how you relate to people, especially in this context, because it might seem good to you. It might be good to you that you are putting someone in debt to you through your favors, through your gifts for the things that you do for them. However, if they are not okay with that themselves, then there will be a default. Eventually, there's going to be a default where they're not going to pay you what you feel that they owe you, and there will be some negative feelings that they will have towards you and you towards them, and the friendship is going to end because it wasn't really a friendship. It was a transaction. It was a relationship based on debt. I just wanted to mention that because I do encounter a lot of people who do relate to others in that way, and it is very frustrating for people eventually when these kinds of things start to come to the surface. Okay, proceeding into Luke chapter 16, verse 10. In verse 10, the Lord Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so he uses this parable in order to continue and explain something else afterwards. And what he begins to say to the disciples is, look, if you're going to be trustworthy, if you want to be in a position where you are a steward, especially a steward of the things of God, then you need to be faithful with the small things. You need to be faithful with the simple things. When you are, there will be some recognition, and the Lord will probably provide you with more things, the same thing as it is in the world, as it is in the kingdom of heaven. In the world, people relate to each other that way. If you are going to be of service to someone else and make use of their capital resources, they're going to give you a little bit of their resources and see what you can do with it. And you will take those resources, you will do what you can, you present your results, and maybe they will give you some more resources to work with. So Jesus proceeds into verse 11, and he says, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? There he makes the division. He says, if you're going to be faithful with the unrighteous mammon, another way of saying with the things in the world, if that is going to be your position and you fail, Well, then how can you expect God to trust you with the true riches? In other words, demonstrate your worthiness with the things of the world, those things that may be considered to be unrighteous. Demonstrate your faithfulness, and God will perhaps entrust you with the true riches. Now, of course, no one will fulfill that. Again, that goes along with the theme of why he's presenting these parables to begin with. No one is going to be faithful 
with the unrighteous mammon, not to the extent that would be expected or required to meet the standard of perfection. You may be faithful up to an extent. You may be faithful to the point where you can be commended by your master, commended by the person who trusts you with the unrighteous mammon. But just because you receive their commendation, just because you generate a profit, that doesn't mean that it's the state of perfection. And so this is a condition that Jesus places in order to place pressure on the disciples and the Pharisees to continue to try to be perfect in the world. Now, of course, with regards to the parable that he gave, the steward decided not to achieve the perfection of getting the maximum value of the debts owed. He didn't do that. He got a profit. He got enough. It was enough to engage in business, and it was enough for him to continue and not have to worry about any further accusations or any further problems that may result from there. And so we can do that. We can engage in the world, and we should do that. And if we have an opportunity to make a profit, even though it may not be as much as we could perhaps make, even though we may not do it as perfectly as we possibly could, we should still do it. It doesn't mean that we should not be a participant. But if you want God to owe you, in a sense, or to see you as someone who is worthy and trustworthy to the extent, whereas if he does not share with you and trust you with the true riches, then there's something wrong with him, well, you're never going to make it. You'll never make it to that standard. And so in verse 12, And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, there are two different messages conveyed here. The first one has to do with if somebody gives you something to work with, and if you are successful, if you are a good manager or a good steward of what he has given you to work with, then you return what is his, plus the profit that is received, and then he will give to you a portion of what you were able to produce with his resources, and that will be your own. That's one way to look at this, where he says again, and if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Well, he won't do it. If you're not faithful, if you're not good with what he gave you to work with, then he's not going to give you something that is his, a portion of, of what you were able to produce. He's not going to do that. Nobody else is going to do that. And so when God sees you and he sees your interactions in the world, is he going to see you as a person who he would be willing to trust what is his to you, knowing what you would potentially do with it or not do with it? That's the second message that Jesus conveys through verse 12. The first message is just simply the practical understanding that if you're not going to be faithful with what somebody else gave you to work with, nobody else is going to give you anything, they're not going to give you anything, and nobody else is probably going to work with you ever again. And so be aware of that. Now, when you engage in these kinds of transactions, you will be confronted with circumstances such that you may have to choose between what is right and what is profitable. Those are issues that people face all the time in the world, in their lives. Sometimes if you do the right thing, sometimes if you exercise righteousness, if you exercise the just decision, you won't make as much money, you won't make as much of a profit as you would if maybe you would fudge on that just a little bit. If you wouldn't do 
the complete, absolute, righteous thing. For example, the steward, he had an agreement. He could have perhaps pressed the issue to try to receive a 100% of what was owed, but he decided to take a lesser amount. That's not perfection. That is not exercising the absolute nature of the law. So also, if the Lord does not see you exercising the absolute nature of the law in every transaction, in every agreement, if you are not perfect in all of those things, it is probably because you have more of an interest in generating a profit, in obtaining friendships, in obtaining good relationships. You have more of an interest in the monetary value and the subsequent opportunities for an increase in monetary value. That's what's more important to you than the absoluteness of the previous agreement. On that basis, you are making a choice between righteousness and continued relationships with people on the basis of perhaps poor agreement or poor decisions, failures in the context of the absoluteness of what you could have achieved. It is, of course, very good business sense to not always receive the maximum compensation for the transactions that you engage in, for the deals that you make. It's reasonable to do that, to always leave a little bit on the table for the other person that you are negotiating with. That's a very good business practice. But in the absolute sense of what the Lord is presenting here, he is explaining to the people that the standards of God are much higher than that. And so in verse 13, he follows through with this by saying, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It was an illustration in order to make the point that you cannot always be righteous if money is a greater priority. If wealth is a greater priority, sometimes you will make decisions that are not as righteous as they could be. Now, when he says despise and hate, I don't think that he's necessarily using the words in the extreme sense that we normally use them. I personally believe that when he says this, he is saying that you must love your God and it is okay to love mammon, but you need to love God more than mammon as if you absolutely despise the mammon or as if you hate the other. You can have two masters in the sense that you have one in the world that you have your life that you have to live. But if you do not love your God to the extent that it is as if you hate and despise your life in the world, then that's not adequate. I personally believe that he's using these words in the Hebrew idiomatic expressions that are related to this. I give examples of this in the series that I produced on the book of Romans, the verse-by-verse series in Romans chapter 9. If you wanted to look into that for more information concerning the exaggeration of loving and yet loving more. And so again, the parable here that the Lord Jesus gave follows the same theme that he has presented with all the other parables, just simply to create the division to show that people will not be able to enter into the kingdom of heaven on the basis of their obedience to the law or their righteousness in the world. They will eventually have to depend on the grace and mercy of God. Now, once a person does that, once they make that transition of being resurrected through the gospel, they now have a new relationship with the living God. Once you have this new relationship, 
because it is established on the basis of what he has done for you and not what you have done for him, he does give to you an abundance. He gives to you an inheritance. That's how he described it. He gives to you an inheritance, which is everything that you need for life and godliness. And as it relates to this parable, there will be a question with regards to what are you going to do with it? What will be your decisions with regards to what the Lord your God has shared with you? Will you take what he has given to you? Will you make use of it? And will you produce more than what he gave to you so that you will return to him what he gave and in addition to that, the profits thereof? In other words, there will be many times when he reveals the truth to you. Will you then share that truth with someone else? And will that have a profound effect in their lives? Will they embrace the truth that you reveal, that you express, that was given to you by God? And will that have an impact on their lives? That, of course, will very much depend on them. But once there is an experience of this transaction and the person's life is changed and transformed, you bring this to him. And in that way, you are a good steward of what God gives to you. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net thank you